All right, so hello everyone and welcome to the AI Stories podcast. I'm Neil Lizer, I'm a data scientist at Iwaka, and I will be your host. So today, our guest is Christina Statopoulos. Christina first did a Bachelor of Science at North Carolina State University, and a couple of years later, she actually did a Master in Business Analytics and Big Data at IE University in Madrid. After that, she started teaching, and she is now still currently an adjunct professor at IE University. And four to five years ago, she also joined Google, where she is now an analytical lead at Waze. So hi, Christina. I'm very happy to have you here with me today. How is it going? No, likewise. I, wanna, I was going to say that I'm very excited to be here today. I know we've been chatting about this and trying to get some time on the calendar. So I'm really happy to be here today. And I, I hope the conversation is useful for our listeners. Thanks. Thanks. I'm sure it will be super interesting. So yeah, first of all, I just wanted to know how did you get interested in AI and how did you get into the field, basically? Yeah, I, I would say that I'm very much focused on everything data. And my path to get to where I am today was definitely not like a straight line. It wasn't an obvious um, path. It was a very unique journey. But there's one thing that always was like a common point throughout my journey. And that's just the fact that I love working with numbers, with data. I always knew I wanted to do something around this. Um, so I grew up with a love for numbers. My favorite class was math and statistics. Um, and then, and I later on went on to study this bachelor's degree that you had mentioned. Mm -hmm. I studied a bachelor's degree in an interdisciplinary field, but I had a focus um, in statistics. So I did that and, um, and I loved what I was doing. But even at this time, data science wasn't necessarily a thing. It wasn't the hot topic that it is today. So when I graduated with that bachelor's, um, I ended up moving abroad to Madrid, Spain right after when I was 22. And at the time, I began working in things completely outside of the field because I had different priorities. At that time, I wanted to learn another language. I wanted to travel the world, which I successfully did at the time. Um, but then after a couple of years of that, I came back to the data world, knowing that that's really what I want to do. I did the master's that you mentioned. Um, and then from there, I pivoted straight into the field professionally in, in data engineering jobs first, and then later on landing the role at Google. Cool. So you mentioned like this common theme of data, you left the field for a bit, but then you decided to join back. What do you like so much about data? Why, why data and not something else? Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't, I don't know why, other than the fact that I like that it's, um, it's based on facts. Like it's not necessarily feeling driven. It's data is, is fact. You can't necessarily argue with it. Um, and, and I like that about it. And I like that it's it can reveal things about the world around you, things that you might not have noticed on your own, these patterns that we can find within data. It's, it can be very insightful. Um, I think that's what draws that that's what draws me to it. And then as well, this aspect of like problem solving, that it always feels like you're you're problem solving and you're hunting in the data for something that you might not even know what you're searching for to begin with. Um, but it's like, yeah, I mean, I find it, I find it fun as odd as that may sound to somebody. So to some people, I actually enjoy that. So solving problem and dealing with curiosity mm -hmm. yeah, and, and finding these facts and, and patterns. Yeah. Something that I find interesting also is with data science and things like this. I feel like every day is a different day. Like it's always a different problem or it's not like you're doing the same task again and again. Um, it's always with data, but it's always something different. Like you can sometimes process and clean data. Sometimes it's building a model. Sometimes it's filtering your data set to put, well, produce some graphs and give some business insights. So that's yeah, something that I also find quite interesting. That's true. It's not a monotonous job usually. Like you're constantly doing different things like you mentioned. And I think that curiosity element as well. Like if you do get, I don't know, bored with what you're doing, then you can be curious about the data and find something new that you can do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely agree. So 
You mentioned that you're doing this transition. So you started, you're from the US and then you wanted to move to Madrid. Why Madrid? Why did you want to move there? Was it just to learn Spanish or did you have something else in mind? Yeah, when I first moved, I mean, there was a lot of different factors at play. Um, when I was finishing my bachelor's, I knew that I wanted to move abroad. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know where at first. And actually, I was I was doing a lot of research considering Asia. So I was looking at Japan or Hong Kong or South Korea. Um, and I and that was the other that was like the plan B. It ended up being, you know, I went with uh, Madrid in the end, Spain. A lot of that can be due to the language. I knew mm-hmm. that if I learned Spanish, I spoke nothing at the time and now I'm, I'm fluent in Spanish, but I knew that if I learned Spanish and then came back to the US, it would be very valuable, mm-hmm. less valuable if I try to learn like Japanese, not to mention mm-hmm. that it's very difficult. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of different um, things as well as like my family coming from a Mediterranean background, my father being Greek, uh, I could relate with the Spanish culture, that Mediterranean sense. So lots of different things there, but. I ended up deciding to move to Madrid and I originally was going to go for one year and I stayed for 10. So that was not a part of the plan. I just ended up staying much longer than I expected. Yeah, Madrid is such a good city. Like I used to go there quite often and yeah, really like the city. Can you maybe tell me a bit more, why do you decide to do this master in business analytics and big data? Like at what point do you decide, okay, I'm going to go back to the data world and study, do a master? Yeah. So I had this idea of doing a master in my head, even when I was finishing my bachelor's. When I was finishing my bachelor's, I actually took the the GRE exam. Okay. I don't know if our, this is very well known in the US. It's less well known maybe in other markets, but we have to do like a, an exam to get into these master programs. I did I the think- GRE I think it's the oh, GMAT in the UK. Um, sometimes it's it's called the GMAT. It's a yeah, slightly yeah. different test, but similar. Yeah, I did the the GRE is typically done in the US for more like technical degrees, okay. engineering and things. And GMAT is done a lot for like MBA. Mm-hmm. And I ended up doing the GRE because I wanted to do something technical. But I actually did that right when I was finishing my bachelor's because I had in mind that I was going to do a master's. So mm-hmm. that wasn't new for me. But I didn't know when or where I was going to do it. So I moved to Madrid and I was doing my own thing there. And then after, I think it was about two years in, I decided like, okay, I need to get back on track. I need to, you know, find a, a job in the field that I want to be in. Um, and I need to do my master's. And I was going to return to the U.S. to do my master's. But I heard about this new program at IE, the mm-hmm. Master in Business Analytics and Big Data, and um, met with them and learned about the program. It was it interested me at the time. So I ended up doing it and I was the second intake of students. Okay. Like it was just the second year that they were running it. It was very new. Mm -hmm. Um, but like it definitely paid off. I loved it. And, and you may ask like, why did I choose this university over like going back to the U S so it wasn't only the educational content, which is important, but also IE, for example, has a very strong, um, international networking component. Mm-hmm. The The student body is super diverse. I think our class was like, I don't even, it was like 50 students from 35 countries or something. So it was very diverse. And I don't think there's any US university that can compete with that level of, of diversity. And that's extremely important to me. Um, so that was one of the big things that made me lean into that, that program. So what did you get out of this master like do you think do you think a master a life master you know full year in ie was worth it compared to you know online courses and things that we have now you mentioned the network which i guess is a big plus that you don't have online so would you recommend like a proper uni master um you know face to face and everything or do you think that something online can also be worth it. I mean, I think you can go both ways. And in my case, I decided to go the traditional way of a master's. And in my case, absolutely 100%, it was the right choice because I was able to pivot back into data science. I needed a way to pivot back into the field Mm -hmm. and a strong, like a strong push. Um, So for me, absolutely worked 100% was one of the best decisions I ever made. But I also recognize that 
there's another way of doing this. Like you don't necessarily have to do a traditional program. You can do, you know, YouTube University, you can do boot camps. Um, but again, if you go that, that way, that route, then you have to be more of a self-starter because then you've got to really, um, you've got to really concentrate and put your own plan together. Whereas a traditional degree um, will, they'll organize it for you. So it depends on which way you want to go. Of course, going like YouTube University way is is more cost effective. Mm-hmm. So you have to to weigh the options and also decide with your personality which one is going to be more beneficial for you. Yeah. So th- basically, depending on who you are and how, I guess in a traditional master, you just have to pick some courses and then you follow the classes and you will learn it it will be quite easy, right? You just need to dedicate one year to it, but you don't need to find the right courses and find the books. And sometimes you start a course and it's not what you wanted. So you need to change because um, online you kind of never know. So I guess traditional might be easier, but you can also do it online if you're a good self-learner. Yeah. And with the masters as well, or bachelors, the only like I guess not. It's like a downside, but you have to be sure that this is what you want to do because it's an investment. Um, with YouTube mm-hmm. University, if you don't like it, then you just stop watching the videos and it's done. Mm-hmm. But with a master's, if you decide like after two months that this isn't for you, mm, too bad. Like you can't you can't go back. So you also have to be sure that this is really what you want to do. Okay, so it looks like it was a good choice for you. But for me, yes. Yeah. yeah, I was also, I did same as you, uh, the traditional way. And I was also quite happy, but I'm not really someone will start like, I'm, yeah, will start watching like 10 or 100 videos, YouTube videos to get to know a field better. I like, you need to get started in the field or get already some expertise. And then I will watch a few videos by myself, but if I had to start everything from zero, I wouldn't be able to do this, but that just personally, I know a lot of people who can do it very easily. So I guess it just depends on who you are. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so after this master, not sure if it's directly after this, or maybe a couple of years later, you actually start teaching AI and machine learning. So can you tell me more about this, like this transition from your master to teaching the field? Yeah, it, and it's like it's very um, connected. It, it's <laughs> not like one and then the other happened right after. It was very like I'll explain it. It's a bit of a story, but um, so during my studies at IE, I was very involved with the university. Um, I was a class ambassador. I was a coordinator for one of the clubs. I was also doing a scholarship where I had to run the social media for our program. Mm-hmm. So I was just very involved with all this networking and events. And that also involved a public speaking element, sometimes like a, from a host perspective. And then after graduation, I still I stayed very involved with the university, with IE. But I began getting invited back now as a speaker at a lot of the student-led events. Um, So I was kind of giving back at that time. Mm -hmm. And throughout all of this, I really got to know a lot of not just the students, but also the staff at IE. Um, They were seeing me at these events, and I was doing a lot of networking. And they were seeing me speaking at events. They were seeing me on stage. Um, And then, just out of luck, an analytics class opened up in one of the MBA programs. And I was contacted and they asked me if I was interested in teaching in higher education. And I said, yeah, of course. Like I love I love helping others, I love teaching. So um, I did a trial run and I taught this analytics course in the MBA as like a trial, a test. And I got very positive feedback. Um, and eventually it, it ended up with me landing a position as an adjunct professor. And now I'm, I'm constantly teaching classes. So just when you finish your master or yeah, a couple of months later, they ask you to teach this class, you do it and it goes well. I think if from finishing the master's to actually teaching, I think there was like um, a year, year and a half in the middle. Okay. That's, that's but it, during that time I was teach, I was uh, public speaking at events. Like I was very involved, yeah. but not as a professor, more just volunteering and, and um, networking and speaking. So 
how did you find this? Was it like difficult because usually, right, you it takes a bit more time after your master to start teaching to master students. Like, I guess you need to know your stuff really well, right? You don't want to mess up. So, was this challenging? Yes, um, and I think this is definitely not normal. Um, it it doesn't happen. I think there's one other person from my class who also regularly teaches at IE. Um, no one else. Mm-hmm. I don't not saying that they're not qualified, but just they haven't either they haven't um, tried or they they're not around to teach. But anyways, it's just not a common case, especially doing it so fast. So in my case, it was just a mix of like luck and my experience, et cetera. But um, it, like when I first got invited to do this, I was very intimidated. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a lot to ask of somebody, especially considering that I had only graduated like a year, year and a half before. Um, so yeah, I was absolutely like scared about it, intimidated, but, um, but I mean, I got over it. I, I, I feel confident speaking in front of a crowd. I also make sure to teach subjects that I'm very familiar with. Like I don't, I'm not going to accept a class where I'm not an expert in what I'm talking mm-hmm. about that I don't feel comfortable. Um, so that, so I really like, I'm, I'm fine with it now. And then I think another element in my case that makes it easier for me is that I'm teaching to MBA students. So what I'm doing, and it's very similar to what I do in my own work, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm finding ways to translate data to the business side. And I'm kind of doing that the same in my classes is that I'm translating technical concepts and, um, and use cases and so on for the business side of things for MBA students. And I feel very comfortable doing that. What, what do you teach exactly? Like which class? Is it one class or different classes? Different classes. So I do, um, for example, like analytics, data strategy. Now, when I talk about analytics, I'll go through, um, I can touch on like data strategy, but also talk about high level analytics. So going through descriptive, diagnostic, predictive, prescriptive. Um, I also do like an intro to ML and AI. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like a mini course in data ethics to introduce them oh. to, to what's going on in that in mm-hmm. that field as well. Um, and then not at IE, but actually at another university, I teach data visualization. Okay, cool. So kind of... A lot of stuff, a lot of yeah. stuff. And yeah. what, what do you think about the difference between AI and machine learning in at uni and in master compared to in industry? I think it's quite interesting that you actually come from industry that you might teach things that are more practical. But I feel usually, yeah, it's usually quite theoretical at uni, at least from my experience. So what do you think? And do you think that, yeah, do you think that academia and uni and business have the same vision of AI and the same approach? I mean, yes and no. I think with AI and ML, like you said, if you're learning it like we did uh, technically in a master's that specializes in this, then we go like very deep in it and you're learning about the theory and you're coding, etc. But when you go on the business side of things, obviously people coming from, you know, business, marketing, law, whatever it may be, like they're not going to be coding. And many times they don't want to, they don't care about that. They don't want to get that deep into it. Um, But nowadays it's so important for them to have at least a basic understanding of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And also like the work that's required behind it, um, as well as understanding like when you should use it versus when you shouldn't, which helps if they have like a definition of what, what exactly is this, like what's going on. So they can distinguish like, okay, well, there's these cases where it's um, beneficial for me to use this. Then there's other cases where I don't need to be using something like machine learning. I can just use like typical analytics or, or A-B testing or whatever it may be. Um, so I think that it's, it's very different how you explain this type of topic, depending on the audience that you're working with. Okay. So in your case, it's more people, they are not going to code the algorithm or things like that, but they're going to have a good understanding of what AI is. And I guess if they want to build their own company or their own project around AI, they can kind of do it. Obviously they will hire a CTO or someone to do the code, but they can at least understand what's going on and whether they should apply AI or not. Is that right? 
Yeah, although I wouldn't say that they're not going to go on and code because as you probably know, like a lot of the MBA programs, a lot mm -hmm. of the people in those classes come from engineering, nowadays even data science. So I have a mix of technical people as well. But my goal of the class is not to teach them how to code. And they're not there to learn that anyways. Mm -hmm. They're there for an MBA. They didn't do, you know, a master in business analytics and big data. So um, I'm there to give them like a very good higher level understanding and also to help them understand how to connect with teams who are working on this, whether that's connecting with an engineering team or data science team, or even if they're going to end up leading a team like this, but giving them an idea of what's going on in the background. Okay. No, yeah, that's, that makes perfect sense. And Yeah, so what do you like so much about teaching? Because you started so early, like, why do you like this so much? It's not common to have someone in industry that also teaches, especially you're in the US and you're going to Madrid to teach. So what do you like so much about this? And what are the main challenges when teaching ML and yeah. AI? Yeah, I would um, I would say I've, I've always liked helping other people in teaching. Earlier when I had mentioned that I moved to Madrid and I was working outside of my field, mm -hmm. I was actually teaching at the time, okay. um, I, but I was teaching English as a second language and I was mm -hmm. teaching business English. I was working a lot with companies and um, helping them improve their business English, especially in Spain where the, the level of English can be quite low. So even then I was teaching. I've always had kind of my hand in something with teaching, mm -hmm. um, but now it it's like really fulfilling for me to not only be teaching, but now teaching about a subject that I'm actually passionate about. It was fine teaching English, but that's not like, it's not a subject that mm -hmm. I'm particularly in love with. Um, but helping others when it comes to data and something that I have a passion about, um, it's a very fulfilling job. And I love, like, I love, for example, when I'm teaching a room of, of students and I can see The, their eyes light up or just their interest. I can see them getting interested in a topic that maybe they didn't understand before or they had no idea about this. That happens a lot in the MBA. Mm -hmm. um, they'll come from completely different backgrounds. And then by the end of my course, they now have like a, a basic understanding and now they're starting to get interested. They're asking me for more resources. How can they get involved? And, and just, I, I don't know, like the fulfilling aspect of it is really um is just really beneficial personally okay no yeah that that makes sense and what are the main challenges there then of teaching teaching lots of challenges um keeping their attention and not having them get bored um i think i do a good job of that i get a lot of um feedback on on how i keep the classes very interactive my teaching style Maybe it's like unique, but I keep the class very interactive. Like I'm constantly changing from lecturing to discussion and debate, um, question and answer, a game, a, a demo, whatever it may be. But I like to change the, um, the way that we're doing things to keep people connected. That's something that I've learned over time works very well. And then I think another big challenge um, when we're talking about like technical subjects mm -hmm. is making sure that you, you match the... Um, the the topic with the audience so like i explained before i'm teaching technical topics but to an mba audience so i need to make it applicable for them and i need to make sure that they will be able to apply it later on in their career so you're teaching like this wide range of topics to yeah i mean not business students not too technical What, but I still guess you know quite well how to start in AI and ML since you're teaching all those intro courses. So what would you advise to someone who wants to start a career in data science and machine learning? Like I get asked this question so many times and I never really have a good answer. It looks like there are so many things that you could start with. So What would your advice be on this? I get asked this question all the time, mm -hmm. and especially in my classes. That's probably not a surprise. Um, I have different pieces of advice. Like for one, I would warn people that there's so much to learn out there. Like this is a massive field. You might not realize that from outside, but once you're in, you realize how much you don't know. Mm -hmm. So do not get overwhelmed. And I would say before you dive into this, um, treat it like a buffet 
and try to learn just a little bit of different topics. Like learn a little bit of, you know, review your statistics, review some or learn a bit about data visualization, learn how to query an SQL, um, study algorithms, study cloud technology, study whatever it may be, but like get a taste of everything and sample it to try to have an idea of what you really want to do. Um, because there's not just one career path and there's not just one profession. You can go mm -hmm. a million different ways. Um, so from there, once you have a good idea, then you can start to think about like, how are you going to get to where you want in the next five, 10 years? And from there, I think it's where you need to decide um, how are you going to study, whether it's a, bas a bachelor's, a master's, a boot camp, or if you just want to use YouTube. Um, so it's a little bit of this, like, are you going to go a traditional route or a, um, or a like self-starter mm -hmm. route? And then another piece of advice I always give is just to connect to leaders in the field. So connect to people on, on LinkedIn. There's tons of people in the field. You have like Kate Strachny, Cassie Kazarkov, Scott Taylor, uh, George Firakon. Like I can go on and on with all the people. Um, but connect to people who are in the field so you can follow what they're sharing and learn, learn from them. And then as well, you can connect or follow people on YouTube. And you can, um, I mean, I have good friends like Ken G on YouTube. There's also Alex, the analyst, like find somebody that you can resonate with and maybe follow them on YouTube to learn about what they do. So how do you keep up to date with the field? Is that by following those people and looking at what they're posting or are there other things that you do to keep getting better? That's one of the main ways is by following all these people in the field and making sure they're like from different, um, different, very different positions and different industries and staying up to date with what they're talking about. Another way that I stay up to date with things is like attending conferences and events. Mm -hmm. I used to do this in person, of course, with COVID, it's a lot more online, which is a pity because I miss the, the networking aspect, mm -hmm. but still you can sign up for events um, and that will give you a really good idea. Like you'll see presenters from different companies talking about what they're working on. And that's a really good way to stay up to date as well. So just before this, you actually mentioned LinkedIn. I can see that you're quite active on LinkedIn. My first question is, do you think that that's important to also not only connect with people, but also be active and provide some value? It can be on LinkedIn, it can be on YouTube, it can be somewhere else. But what do you think? A hundred percent. Like I could not, I cannot emphasize enough how important that is. And I think this goes a little bit with like building a personal brand. So not having your job define you. Mm -hmm. but finding a way to build a brand around your name that's connected to the passions that you have. And when I say passions, it can be professionally or personally, and you want to connect those. And I think the personal element, especially when we're talking about social media, you want to mix a little bit of personal stuff in there too, because it helps people connect with you. And it shows that you're not just a, a robot um, playing with data all day. So um, yeah, absolutely use LinkedIn, but not just to follow people. You need to be active. Um, interacting with people and also proactively sharing content or sharing your journey and find a way to build this, this brand. Yeah, I feel a bit like teaching. Um, it's good to, it's good to, I mean, consume knowledge from others, but it's also good to share and give to others as well. And I think it takes time and it's maybe you think, oh, why would I do that? But I think you actually also learn a lot by sharing with others. I'm sure you learn a lot from teaching to business students. You learn a lot from the students. And by posting on LinkedIn, you also learn a lot. You need to read some articles and understand them well. You interact with others and learn other things or think about things that you wouldn't think about on your own. So I feel like giving things to others is also a way to learn for yourself, actually. Yeah, no, no, you're right. So it's not just consuming, but also sharing back. And in that journey, you're going to end up learning more. I mean, I definitely learn something new every single time I teach a course, whether it's because of my own research, like I was reading up on something to update it, mm -hmm. or um, a student makes a comment in a class and I get to learn about 
what happened at their previous job, for example. But I'm always learning new stuff. So maybe, uh, I guess, a difficult question, but so you're teaching, you're posting on LinkedIn, you're also working at Google. So where do you feel that you learn the most in terms of personal development? Do you think that there is one single place where you learn the most or is it like all of this together? Um, Yeah, what do you think? It's a really tough question. And I don't know if I could pick just one. Like I think every... Every aspect from this like LinkedIn environment that I'm in, as well as Google, as well as teaching, like all of them are developing me personally and professionally in different ways. So it's really it's really tough for me to say which one. If I had to if I had to choose one, I think I would say the teaching one is the one that I grow in the most, just because it takes a lot of energy out of me. To be honest, when you're preparing these classes and then when you're getting up in front of a um, of a crowd mm-hmm. and you want to please them, you want to teach them, like it just takes a lot out of you. Um, and a lot of like preparation goes into it. A lot of like um, imagining to the future, what could they ask me trying to think ahead and be prepared. Um, and just the, you know, the course content, et cetera. And then um, it develops me a lot, like when it comes to public speaking mm-hmm. and communication, which is like this soft skill that you can use for anything. It's it's relevant for every industry and everything that we can imagine. Um, and I'm constantly working on that skill, which is very important. And I think could be applied across all of the different aspects of my professional um, professional career. So, okay. So teaching might be the best because you also learn quite a lot of soft skills, which I guess help you in your careers. We often, I, I think I actually saw a LinkedIn post this morning, like, Hard skills get you in, but soft skills get you far or get you promoted. It was something like that. Yeah, Yeah. that sounds about right. Yeah. So one last question on this teaching, actually more related to LinkedIn, and then we'll talk a bit about Google and Waze. But I can see you're doing this one book a week challenge or you're posting books on LinkedIn so do you want to talk a bit more about this? Are you actually reading one book every week? Um, yeah, tell me more about this. Yeah, I. so for those listeners that don't know about this, I host the hashtag book a week challenge on LinkedIn. And yes, I do read a book a week, I promise. Um, and wow. I'm also very particular because I only read physical books. I don't do digital at all. Um, so I have like a, a constantly growing bookshelf in my house. Um, and for me, it's, it's a way that I disconnect from all of this tech, from my phone, my, my work, the computer, et cetera. Like for me, it's a time that I can, even I turn off the TV and I'm concentrated on my book. So I use it to disconnect. Um, and the, the challenge though, so the challenge came out originally because it was more like a challenge to myself, but if you publish it if you make it like public it kind of um it pushes you to stick with it you feel like now you've told everybody you're going to do it so you need to stick with it so it started kind of like a personal challenge and then it grew into this community effort because now i have a lot of people involved in it um, and i encourage others to to do the same and this is more really about picking up small habits because for me it means reading 30 45 minutes every day never missing a beat. And I can, I can finish a book a week in that way. And then uh, one thing that I've done with the community is that I run the book a week challenge, but also the book a month challenge, because I do know that a book a week is asking a lot. So with a book a month, I think that everybody can finish at least one book a month. There's, there's almost no excuse that you can get away from that. You can read a book a month, it requires very little time if you break it down into like a daily habit. It could be something that you read over coffee every morning, but you would be able to finish a book every month in that case. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Actually, can we also do a book a month challenge, book a yeah, week yeah, yeah. or a book every two weeks, something like that? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can do whatever whatever fits you. But I think the, the main message of this is like picking up habits sticking to it every day. And especially in this case, a healthy habit. I would qualify it as a healthy habit because you're learning. There's a lot of benefits when it comes to reading. You don't have to necessarily read like technical books. You can read novels and 
and um, sci-fi or whatever it may be, but all of them end up um, helping you like in a healthy way. It's funny that you talk about habits because I just actually started today Atomic Habits from Jane. I, I thought you were going to say that, Atomic Habits, yeah. I don't know if you, you've read it. I I guess you do, but maybe maybe not. I, I haven't. I've had it recommended to me like a hundred times. So it's on my list and I'm aware of it, but I haven't read it yet. Because yeah, what you mentioned is actually looks like the beginning of the book that you need to pick up some habits and things like that. Um. So yeah, I also got it recommended by a lot of people, actually started it today. We'll let you know if it's a good one or not. And maybe it can convince you to do the book a week challenge or the book a month challenge. Yeah, let's start with a month or every two weeks. I think I'm already doing book a month, but so every two weeks and then and then every week to yeah read more and more. Um, so yeah, all right, let's now talk a bit. We've, we went through like your career, your start, your beginning in... AI and machine learning, your master, your experience as a teacher, but or as a professor. But on top of this, four or five years ago, you actually joined Google and you're now the analytical lead at Waze. So let's dive a bit into this. First of all, how did you join Google and why? Yeah, this is a really interesting story, actually, because LinkedIn got me into Google. So going back to the emphasizing this point of trying to build a personal brand, it can really open a lot of doors for you. Um, so in my case, Google had always been like a dream company for me. It really is for a lot of people working with data. Mm -hmm. um, but going back quite a few years, I at the time, I didn't think I was good enough. So typical imposter syndrome. So I didn't even think to apply. Um, and, but if we rewind back, back to like more than five years ago, I was very active on LinkedIn, the same, like I am today. And, um, my activity got me noticed in Madrid and there was a, um, a hiring manager that reached out to me and he had seen my content and he also had an open position at the time on his team that he thought could fit some of the, the things that I was posting about in my studies, my knowledge. So he was wondering if I was um, if I was interested in hearing more about it, and I I was of course. It was a it was a nice fit. Um, so I went and met with with them with the team. I did this interview process, um, and you would probably think that that's the end of the story, but it's not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I did not get the job though. I did the interview process. I made it to the end, and then there ended up being someone who was more qualified, which is totally fine. But I, I stayed in touch with the hiring manager and the team after that. And they ended up having another position open up, similar. Um, these, these positions that were opening were called analytical consultant, very okay. similar to what I still do now. Um, so they had this second position open up and they contacted me again and they said, hey, we have an opening. Do you want to try again for this one? And I did it. I did not get the job. <laughs> I made it to the end. And again, there was someone more qualified. Um, but then they called me a third time months wow. and months later. And I did the interview and I got the job. Um, and this, though, at the time, this was like a, this was a contract role. So it was like project based. It was temporary okay. for about a year. Um, but I took it. And then while I was working at Google, I did more interview processes. I did two more later on, many months down the road. Um, and on the second try, I landed a full-time job. So right. if you if you were if you were paying attention that whole time, there was five full processes. Um, and it took me five times. And I'm telling you all of this because I think it's a really important lesson for listeners here that persistence is key. Um, if your dream company is Google or if it's not tech, even if it's Disney or L'Oreal or whatever it may be, a lot of these big companies especially are very competitive. And um, it's typical that you're not going to get in on the first try. But what's very important is that you're persistent and also that you learn from each process or you learn from your mistakes. You learn lessons along the way so that you're better prepared when the right opportunity presents itself. Yeah, it's very interesting that you mentioned this story. And I think I told you this already, but a few weeks or months ago, I interviewed someone else from Google who 
told me yeah. he was applying every month. Um, you can apply, I think, three times every three months or once a month, something like that. And so he was just applying every month. And at some point, he actually got an email from a recruiter or something like that, which clearly means that you don't need to give up after one time, which maybe too many people are doing, I guess, not following up and they think, oh, I'm rejected, then it's over. Um, so yeah, you, we should persist a bit more, I guess. Yeah. And, and don't think thing, don't take things personally, I think. Like a rejection doesn't necessarily mean that you're not um, that you're not good enough for the job. You just have to consider that in that specific situation, there might have been someone who is more qualified at the time. Because, you know, next time you might end up being that number one candidate, but you never know. So it's just don't take it personally and, and use it as a learning opportunity so you can be better the next time. Yeah, I think there is also quite a lot of luck involved. Like you mentioned, there could be someone better than you, but there could be other reasons, right? Maybe actually this job wasn't for you. You think it's for you, but maybe it wasn't technical enough or I don't know, it wasn't based on your answer the interviewers didn't think it was the right job for you. And I guess sometimes also maybe you're too good and some interviewers might be, or if it's people that, you know, data scientists who are going to hire you in their team, maybe they don't want you to be too good or there could be like a lot of reasons, right? Maybe they were looking, you have the same profile as five other people in the team and they wanted someone different. Like it can, there can be like a thousand reasons why they don't take you even though you're good and you can you could actually do a great job so yeah. that's why i think you should apply to like loads of different jobs that's what i did actually and you will end up getting a good one i'm sure yeah you just have to keep trying but you'll you'll get it so you mentioned that you're doing an analytic consulting role you're still like now you're an analytical lead at ways so can you talk a bit more about this? What does, first of all, what is Waze? I don't know if everyone is familiar with it. I'm quite familiar with Waze, but yeah, I don't know. And the second thing is, what does being an analytical lead actually mean? Like what's your day-to-day -day kind of role? Yeah. Do you use the app? Do you use Waze? Yeah, always. Like if I'm, Great. well, I'm not driving in London, but if I drive in Belgium, I always use Waze just because it's faster than Google Map or other things. It always gets you to, yeah, it's always the best and the quickest way because it spots traffic quite well. So yeah, I personally use Waze. Great. Great to hear. Um, that's yeah. what I wanted to make sure. Yeah. So Other, if, otherwise, if... I guess we would have, yeah, we would have stopped the interview, right? Or the conversation. Yeah, we would have had to cut it from here. <laughs> No, so for for those who might not be as familiar with the app, so Waze is a global community-based um, navigation app. And it not only, like you were mentioning, it gives these optimized directions, but it can also like recognize live traffic um, updates around that, road alerts, and so on. And as well, it, it was acquired by Google. So I'm still within the Google org, but now I'm working for Waze. Um, and you had asked about the position. So um, previously I was an analytical consultant. Now I'm an analytical lead and um, the positions are quite similar. So before I was an analytical consultant in Google and, um, and that was like in the core Google, in the core Google organization. And then now I'm in, I'm in Waze as an analytical lead. And either way, in both cases, the role is requiring you to be like a data translator. So you can mm -hmm. think of it like a tech person on a sales team and you are really building a bridge between the data and the business. Um, so like I mentioned before, I work within the sales org, even within, within Waze, which for us is based on ads. So beforehand, I'm talking, I was talking about Google ads and now I'm talking about Waze ads. And what I do is I advise our clients um, around like their marketing and their overall business decisions but I'm using it, I'm using data to power these decisions. So before I was using like Google powered data, so you can think of search, I was using all the search data and now I'm using Waze powered data. So it's around mobility, where and how people are moving. And we can use this data, we can connect it to 
um, all of the different data that we have, third-party sources, as well as client data to better understand the market. And in this case, specifically talking about mobility. And I think it's incredibly interesting just because of um, given what's happened the last years with COVID, we've had a, a disruption in the way that we move. And Waze is one of the platforms that can tell you how how is how has there been disruption and how are behaviors changing? Okay, and by client, you mean client who want to put some ads on the app, right? Yeah. So when I say clients, we're talking about in the advertising space. So they're advertising clients. Yeah. So we can advise them when it comes to their advertising. But many times we go beyond that and we act as like partners because I'm working with the larger, the largest advertisers. So we work with them as partners um, to not only advise their advertising, but also advise their business. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think that's quite clear. Can you maybe give some examples on where you would actually use machine learning in the app? Why is AI, you mentioned you're using quite a lot of waste data. So why is this data so important? And where do you use machine learning in the app? I know we cannot go into too many details, but like high level view of why machine learning is quite important. Yeah, I can talk from like, um, from a high level view of the app, mm -hmm. because if you think about it, apps like this are really powered by machine learning and AI. Um, and when we think about like ways, it's using a lot of predictive and prescriptive analytics when you go in there as a user. So um, if we focus on some of that really cool stuff, I would say that the prescriptive analytics part, technically it's used every single time you go into the app and you take a drive with the app. So the platform is constantly collecting all of these data points mm -hmm. um, that we end up tracking and analyzing and understanding, but it's collecting and analyzing the data in real time. And it's combining that with historical data to then calculate probabilities that are related to your starting point and then your destination point. And then based on all of this data, it can be from traffic patterns, it can be from the time of day or day of week, the road conditions, et cetera. It can combine all of this data and then in an automated way, it prescribes an action to the user Um, recommending them which route they should take to get from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it's up to the user whether, whether they want to accept or reject that. Um, because you, of course, as the user, you can apply some of your own maybe personally known knowledge to this and decide, okay, is this the, is this the route I really want to take? Um, which in many cases, it sounds like yes, because you, you mm -hmm. like using it. So it seems yeah. to be working. But this is like a core um, use case and a very, very important one because it really lies at the at the at the um, at the root of why so many people love the the platform. Okay, no, that makes complete sense. And yeah, actually, I yeah I like using it because I think it spots traffic quite well. Like for Google Maps, I'm used to use Google Map in London because. I'm working in London and yeah. this is yeah. mostly for driving, right? So when I'm back in Belgium, I'm sometimes used to use Google Maps. So I would use Google Maps if it's like a short drive. And then every time I'm stuck in traffic and I'm like, oh, why didn't I use Waze? Why didn't I use Waze? I need to remind myself that I need to set up Waze. But yeah, it's always, it just gives you yeah a better way. If you want to avoid wasting time, I think it's the way to go. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you have other areas where you actually apply machine learning except like predicting predicting I guess speed or time to go from point A to point B? Are there other areas where machine learning is also important? Yeah, there is. There's a lot of it involved, but more in like the logic of what we're doing with our data and how we're organizing the data. Um, and preparing it for analysis later on. But that goes into the more like the specifics, but okay. there are other ways that we can use it, but more in, in the back end and in the way that we organize and perform the logic, I guess we could say, across the, the data. Okay, so still important, but more technical stuff. Um, all right, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So I'm not going to dive into the details of the algorithms because I know we can't talk too much about this, but I want to focus the last part of the conversation on career advice and your career overall. The first thing is, obviously, it's 
still quite difficult for women to break into AI and ML, or maybe not difficult, but we don't see as many women than men in, in the field. Not entirely sure why, but yeah, what, first of all, based on your experience, do you think that was difficult? Like, because you were a woman, it was more difficult to get into the field or get to, yeah, essentially become well-known or post on LinkedIn? Did you feel you had a more difficult time or was everything all right? And what advice would you give to other person who want to get into the field? Yeah, I would definitely say that I've had my my obstacles along the way. And I would say that it's not just as a woman, but in general, any kind of minority, there is normally a gap or a barrier when it comes to tech. So it doesn't necessarily have to be AI, ML, data science, software engineering, all of these different like very technical um, fields, there is this gap. And if we focus on the gender aspect, which is what you're you're talking about, so there's this huge gap between like male and female representation. And I see that across the board in tech and practically every subfield of tech. Um, and I think it's due to a lot of different obstacles and blockers that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could go into this. There, there's a lot of different reasons, but I think um, some of the main things that at least I've seen is related to like unconscious biases mm-hmm. um, that people have these unconscious biases and because of the fact that they're unconscious it's hard to to fight against them um, and then as well like this everybody talks about it cliche but the imposter syndrome that especially us as females as women we can experience it especially when you might be going into a room and it's all males and you're the only woman there Um, so, and I could definitely say from my own experience, I've, I've experienced all of this. Um, I oftentimes, for example, when I walk into like a classroom to teach, or I walk onto a stage, at least pre COVID, when I walked Mm -hmm. onto a stage to give a a talk, um, I would, I could see people like questioning if I was the right speaker, because they weren't necessarily expecting me to be like their teacher for data science or whatever it may be. I can see that questioning in their face. Mm-hmm. I've even been asked like if I was in the wrong place, if I needed needed help. And I was like, no, no, I'm here wow. to teach this class. Um, so, really? and this comes back to like unconscious biases thing and people making assumptions that they probably shouldn't. Um, and I think you'd asked about it. You'd asked about like, how do we overcome this, right? Yeah. What would be your advice for a woman who wants to start getting into the field or any minority who wants to, wants to get into the field? Yeah, I think at first um, you do need to realize that th- these situations that are uncomfortable might happen um, as well. You might experience imposter syndrome, but keep in mind that pretty much everyone experiences this, even, even males, like everyone experiences. Some I, I do. Of, I do. Yeah. Also. Yeah. See, so everybody experiences some form of imposter syndrome. You're not alone. Um, but I think if you're if you're trying to break into this field, and especially if you are a minority, then uh, my my big piece of advice is to fake it until you make it. But in the sense of like, learn to project confidence and go into a room with a smile on your face, even if you're not comfortable or whatever it may be, if you're feeling shy on the inside, do not let that show. You need to you need to have this like aura of um, of confidence because it helps a lot. Um, and as well, like remember that if you are going into this situation with the disadvantage that people have this bias towards you, well, then it's even more reason to prove them wrong. I think. So try to take this situation and turn it on its head. Turn it around. Prove them wrong. And then they're going to be even more impressed with you because they were expecting, you know, this from you and you delivered this. So take advantage of that and just just prove them wrong and go in with confidence. That's what I try to do, especially um, like in a class or a speech that I told you about. Um, If I feel this kind of like uncomfortable or people are questioning, then that means I need to prove them wrong. And I need to do it as soon as possible. All right. So, yeah, thanks a lot. That was actually super interesting and super useful. Definitely. Do that if you want to get into the field and don't be scared. I'm sure. I think it's something that everybody can do. It looks difficult when you see all the maths, all the 
computer science, all the SQL stuff, but little by little, I think you will just be impressed by how much you can actually learn and how quickly you can actually get into the field. So if you're interested, I would definitely encourage anyone to join. I yeah really love the field and it would be great to have more women or minorities, any kind of minority joining the field. I think it's also important as well when it comes to like inclusive tech, we're starting to realize more and more the importance of having these diverse teams, diverse data sets, mm-hmm. and you're just not going to, you're not going to be able to build inclusive tech if you have a non-diverse team. So I think it's, it's becoming like important and it's at the top of people's minds now and they're realizing that we do need to like diversify the tech pool. So it's happening and it's improving, but um, but we still have work to do. And I think even for teams, it's like beneficial, right? Because you have different backgrounds, different ideas. And I'm sure if, if it's only, you know, male coming from computer science, like I don't think the team is going to be as efficient than having, you know, people from different backgrounds, different minorities, well, different experiences will have different ideas. And I'm sure that by sharing those different ideas, you can actually do more as a team. So I'm sure it will also yeah, impact teams a lot. Yeah, when I actually, and it reminds me when I talked to my class, I talked to my classes a little bit about this, um, like inclusive tech. And when I talk about data ethics and things, but the diversity, um, there's different stories that I always tell to my classes. And like one of them, for example, it's a very like strong story. And I don't know if you heard about it because it happened a couple of years ago, but it happened in the U.S. And they opened up a, um, a, a library in the U.S. Some university opened up a new library. And they had spent millions and millions of dollars. And the library, the, the, sec- the, the second and third floors, the upper floors, had a see-through, like transparent floor. Mm-hmm. And it was a part of the design, like it looked really cool. And they opened the library and they started getting complaints immediately from females who were wearing dresses and skirts when they went mm-hmm. to the library. And they were like, we can't go to the second and third floor. And I know this has nothing to do with data science, but it it kind of helps open your mind to like, look at look at what happened. I mean, they spent these millions of dollars. I'm assuming they didn't have a very diverse team. Mm-hmm. And someone overlooked this design flaw. Mm-hmm. And I think if you had more females on the team to begin with, then someone would have killed that idea at the beginning. It never would have made it to the point where they invested all of this and literally built and launched the building without somebody realizing. And I think it happens in tech. So you have to be careful and you need to have um, diverse teams. Yeah, no, completely agree with you, especially AI and ethics is becoming more and more important. So if you want to make sure that you're complying with, with all the rules, you definitely it's a, definitely better to have a more diverse team. And I think just in general, it's always, always a positive thing. Yeah, 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 I agree. Right, so I just want to finish the conversation with one last question. If you had one advice to give to someone who wants to progress in their career what would it be just one advice do i have to give one or can i give two <laughs> you can give two i i will okay I you this. It's, it's hard for me to pick and we've talked about these i think and as we've talked through our conversation i think there's two main things that i would say that are a little bit more out of the, the box um, one is what we talked about building your personal brand do that because it can open a lot of doors for you um, and and that can be through a lot of different ways, LinkedIn, YouTube, events, et cetera. So build a personal brand. And then the second piece is around like continuous learning. Get into the habit of constantly updating your knowledge um, because you're going to have to do that. Whether you're in the data tech world, you'll have to. So get into that, um, into that, uh, that habit. And one of the ways, of course, is by reading books. That's the way I do it. But you mm-hmm. can also like watch videos and take courses. But make sure that you start to get into that habit early on and you're regularly updating your, your knowledge. All right, great. Thanks a lot, Christina. That was like super interesting. If listeners want to stay in touch with you or follow you, what is the best place for this? Where should they go, essentially? 
they should go to LinkedIn. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. That's my platform. Um, you can follow, connect with me there. I share a ton of content around data and tech. Um, and then of course you can also search for that hashtag book a week challenge or hashtag book a month challenge. And I, as well as many people, we share our reading there. So if that interests you too, then you can join on to that either to follow or to, to join it as well. Well, thanks a lot. It was great to have you on the AI Stories podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe on my YouTube channel or follow me on LinkedIn. Follow also Christina if you're interested. Uh, yeah, thanks a lot. Have a good evening, I guess, in the US now, still the evening. And yeah, see you soon. Thank you so much.